New York Times columnist Ross Douthat, um, he wrote of a recent dinner he was invited to. And as is the case when, you know, people are sitting around the dinner table sparking up conversation, he raised the question and he said, by show of hands, how many of you believe in ghosts? <laughs> now, to maybe not your surprise or mine, no one raised their hands. Now, the reason he tells the story and the surprising twist of the story is as no one raises their hands, there was an elderly lady who was sitting next to him at the dinner table. She leaned over and she said this, I don't believe in ghosts, but I've seen one. <laughs> now, this is the, the dynamic that so often we find ourselves in. We have these experiences, maybe even this longing, this hunger for more, but we don't know how to make it fit within our framework of what we once or previously conceived to be the truth of reality. And no matter how hard we try, no matter who you are in this room, no matter where you are in your faith journey, when we're honest with ourselves, we know that there's this deep hunger and maybe even a, an inkling that there is more to life, more to our world, more to us, and maybe even more to our experience of the life that we experience day in and day out. But the real question comes as to how do we make sense of that feeling for more? How do we make sense of this feeling of more? If you're here today and you're not yet a follower of Jesus or you're exploring even what it means to know God and to be known by him, you probably have had an experience, a time or two that don't fit your categories for the natural order of things. And, and it, it's hard to just go, and I know people don't use these anymore, but this is the image that kept coming to mind. Go to an encyclopedia. Like who goes and like pulls an encyclopedia off their shelf anymore? Most of the time we're going to like Wikipedia or something like that. But to try to make sense of what's going on. And so we find ourselves in a space wrestling through this, this feeling of, of more. Now there are some in our day and age who say that this feeling of more or even this inkling that there's something more than the natural world is nothing more than an evolutionary byproduct left over from when we were in nature trying to survive and so create a narrative that brought us psychological comfort and given enough time, this evolutionary byproduct will give way. For example, there's a gentleman by the name of Max Weber he is the father of sociology as we know it. And over a century ago, he, was, he predicted that in our secular age here in the Western world, eventually religion would go away and what would replace it was rationalism. His very key word for describing the very age of this or the, the very theme of the secular age was disenchantment. No more mystery. Instead, you would find explanation, formulation, calculation. Therefore, reason would win the day. Full stop. The only problem with that is a century later, with all the scientific advancements, which there are many, and technological advancements, which there are also many, we have not arrived in that place of full disenchantment. Actually, what we come to find, even though the number, especially in the Western world, is rising of the quote-unquote unreligious, those who are not tethered to any particular explicit belief structure that has coherent framework, what we're also finding is a growing number of what are self-described spiritual but not religious folks. 
The prestigious magazine, The Atlantic, just a couple years ago did a study and found that there was one in five individuals who are self-described spiritual folks, but not religious. It's this hunger, this inkling that there is indeed more to the world than we may have been told in the naturalistic framework, that, that just our senses of taste, touch, and smell, and so on, that, that, that that's all that there is. And, and instead, people are saying, no, there feels like there's something more, and they're hungry for answers. And so they're unwilling to go so far as the full atheistic camp, but find themselves maybe in this spiritual squishy middle where they have a large landscape to explore this feeling. But what happens is, is so often trying to explore those feelings in the large landscape of just mere spirituality is that you find yourself fumbling in the dark, hoping that you might bump into the truth. And that can be a very anxious place to be. It can be both adventurous and extremely nerve-wracking. And so if you're here this morning and you have this inkling for more, this hunger for more, if you're a follower of Jesus and you're wrestling even too with this desire for more, as if God's word is guiding us into more than maybe what you've been experiencing in your walk with Jesus, then today is actually a really exciting day. At least it's been for me. Because we are going to begin a series exploring who's at the center of that more. We're going to begin a six-week series on the story of the Holy Spirit. Now, as we are exploring the Holy Spirit, we're going to be leaning in into what many people call in the Christian faith the forgotten God, you know. Um, I mean, Jesus, he gets Christmas and Easter, but the Holy Spirit, nobody sends, teens, sends the show up for like Pentecost. He's like, hey, the party keeps going. Actually, God's still working. Haven't you read Acts? Like, what's going on? And so we're going to dive deep and actually zero in on this one, the Holy Spirit, who is the author, the very force, the, the essence, the person around this feeling. For more, Jesus himself says you can't see him, but you can feel him. He's what we're longing for. Now, I know as soon as we start talking about the Holy Spirit and you get around some Christians and non-Christians, there's a lot of different thoughts going on, right? Many of us have questions around the Holy Spirit. Of course we do. Some of us have deep concerns, and some of those are very validated because certain actions that were maybe abusive or toxic were baptized in this quote-unquote language of the Spirit led me to do it. And so we maybe have some trauma or some triggers from that. As soon as this language starts popping up and we might overreact to completely ignore the Spirit because of the fears of the abuses of the Spirit. And we're not going to be able to answer every question we have of the Holy Spirit in these six weeks. But what I am really excited about is we're going to learn a whole lot about who God is in this journey. We're going to not only see new ways that he's working, but we're also going to, be have, a, going to have a better awareness of the ways that he's already working that we can join in. Doesn't that sound exciting and good and wonderful and beautiful? Well, I am also pretty excited about that. Um, and here's the other thing. If you notice on the end of your aisle, we've got these little booklets, and you're like, what are these all about? Um, these are our journals. So we are continuing in this series now around the story of the Spirit, and we're continuing the formed.life journey. So this is, has resources for every day of the week, um, and there's a place actually in there for you to take notes on Sunday, so there's a page for that. But here's the goal of this. Since we're going to be jumping around 
to different texts. We tend to love here at Christ Community preaching through whole books of the Bible. Oh man, get me lost in a narrative, get through an argument within one of the epistles and so on or the letters, and I am just loving it. But simultaneously, we see the need to do some of these topical series to lean in on a particular theme and specifically the person of the Holy Spirit. But to equip you to better engage the text well and to engage the discipline of study, which the Spirit works in and through, the resources Monday through Saturday, whether it's reading texts or memorizing texts or times of extensive prayer, those are all preparing and looking forward to the upcoming Sunday. Okay, so they equip you to go deeper when we gather together and study God's word together. And so I'd encourage you to grab one. They're on the end of your aisle. You can get up and grab one at any point, especially if you're looking for a place to take notes. Um, I deeply encourage that. Um, But here's what we're going to see. If you want one big idea for the beginning of our series, and this is in response to Max Weber's statement about our age. Okay, he said, what was the major word for our age? Disenchantment, right? That was his prediction of where the world was headed due to progress. Well, I would actually say, looking across the biblical narrative from a Christian perspective, instead what we see is everything, and this is the big idea, everything is enchanted with the Spirit. Now, to be clear, not everything is God, nor is God in everything, but instead we see that there is, an ex- there is another dimension to life. There's not just the natural, there's the supernatural. There's an essence of magic to what is happening because of who is behind all of this. Everything is enchanted with the Spirit, which is a pretty robust and expansive understanding of how God's working. And listen, if everything is indeed enchanted, if every time you're going through these experiences, you realize, oh man, there seems like there's more going on here. There seems like there's more than just a chemical response of cause and effect. If there's really more to this world than just meets the eye, then we would expect, if that's true, that the Spirit would show up when everything began which is exactly where we turn our attention this morning, to the very beginning of the biblical narrative of God's portrayal of history here in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. So if you have your Bibles or a Bible app handy, I'd encourage you to turn there, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And while you're turning there, I want to give you a little bit of the context too to help us better understand how this book was written. It wasn't just dropped out of heaven, out of nowhere, void of any context. Instead, The book of Genesis was delivered by the Spirit to Moses at a particular time. They are leaving Egypt in the oppression of a whole people group that were enslaved unjustly, and God brought about an extraordinary exodus for their freedom that brought about physical flourishing, spiritual flourishing, and broader redemption. And in that context, when there's all these different narratives or stories about how the world came to be and who's actually in charge— God here reveals to Moses and through Moses now continued on for us today, the beginning of the world. The beginning, Genesis, literally the beginning of the world. Why? Because how things began shape where they can go. How, let me say that again. How things began and why they began is extraordinarily important as to who we become And where we're going, if it has a certain kind of beginning, then there's a ceiling as to who we can become. Do you see what I'm saying? This is deeply tethered to who we are and where we can go as creatures 
It's brilliant. Now, what's also fascinating, that's just a good reminder, is that when it, this was written, empowered by the Spirit for our good, it doesn't start the way we as modern people would really like it to start. What do I mean? As modern people, the common conversation we may find ourselves happening today is, does God exist? This is a common question for our current cultural moment. And so we seek to wrestle through proofs and ideas and even a framework as to why we can feel confident that God exists. In the ancient world, in the ancient Near Eastern world, there weren't atheists. <laughs> the question is, which God do you serve? Not if there is a God. And it's not because they were primitive and if they just had enough technological advancement, if they'd really just seen the way the world actually worked, then they would finally come to a realization and ask this question too. No, 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 no. They weren't distracted by screens living in actually a fabricated reality. They were living in the real world and a better in tune to what their hearts were and the dynamics of relationships such that the realness and the reality of something beyond themselves actually engaged in the world made a lot more sense. And I think we have something to learn from them on this. But it doesn't begin with a defense of God's existence. It just begins with the assumption that God exists and he is the source of life as you heard the text already read for us this morning. Now, there's more going on here. So let's read those first two verses, the beginning of our scriptures once again. Genesis chapter one, verses one and two. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, right here, we come to understand the complexity and the plurality of our God just in these first two verses. Now, I want to give you a, a deep understanding or just a quick cursory understanding that Genesis, many of you know this, but I'm going to just say it for clarity's sake. Genesis was not written in English. It's not the primary language of the history of the world. This was actually written in Hebrew. Okay, Hebrew, that was the language that was copied for thousands of years, hand copied and carried forth the very word of God for the people of God. And so right here in verse one, we find God, Elohim in Hebrew. And then you get to verse two and you find Ruach Elohim. So now we're really getting deep into it now, okay? So we find that somehow God is God, he's Elohim, but he's also spirit. There's something beautiful about who God is and the spirit, everything is enchanted with the spirit. And if everything is, here's what's astounding. Here's our first, as we unpack this everything, we come to see that God himself is enchanted with the spirit. Now, what we're scratching at here is the Christian formulation and the wrestling of the biblical narrative of what's often called the Trinity. That within God, the one God, there are three persons. And I want, to ha want you to hang with me because this first point as we kind of walk our way through is a little more theologically dense. But hang with me because we're stepping into mystery, wrapped in an enigma, holding fast to truth, okay? So it's a bit of a journey, but stick with me. All right, so we find three persons, but one God. One God, the Shema, Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one and yet simultaneously, we see that he's three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Spirit over the overarching biblical narrative and somehow held together always and forever. This is the beauty of our good God. I love what C.S. Lewis in his uh, hallmark writing, Mere Christianity, says. He says, if Christianity was something we were making up, of course we could make it easier, but it is not. <laughs> 
We cannot compete in simplicity with people who are inventing religions. How could we? We're dealing with fact. Of course, anyone can be simple if he has no facts to bother about. Lewis always had a way of words about him. Brilliant 20th century theologian, philosopher, and brilliant mind. Um, You know what's absolutely astounding as we step into these first two verses is how we are invited, how God reveals himself, and he invites us to explore him as an infinite being. You and I, we have limits. That's what we call finite. We have a very framework as to how much we can consume. If you study for six hours, you're like, I've hit my limit, right? Some of you are like, six hours? Um, There's a point where we all expand or actually exhaust our resources, and we can't go any further. Except with God, he's infinite. He cannot exhaust himself and who he is. And yet we're invited to know him. Somehow we have a God who is beyond our understanding that simultaneously invites us to know him. What an extraordinary God we serve. Also, because of his moral character, he cannot be deceptive or engage in lies. So he cannot make one truth statement about him over here and another truth statement about him over here and then being logically inconsistent or incongruent and falsify one another and him still be a good God. And since we live in a good world that is full of really good, wonderful things, we know that our God is good because if he was an evil God, it would constantly be twisting and torting and turning towards us and against us for our evil. But instead, we live in a good world that has brokennesses about it that has a broader narrative to it as to why that brokenness is here because of us. But because of his character, he reveals who he is in truth. But because of his capacity of being, we can never exhaust the beauty of his capacity of being in our knowing. And yet he lets us and he invites us to walk with him. Woo, that's a good God. Now, here's the deal. Here's the deal. Now, when we start getting into this, uh, some folks are like, man, Gabe, I don't need any of that. Okay, I just want to walk with Jesus, all right? Let's just keep it simple. Let's, the reason that the Trinity and the formulation of understanding how God relates within himself wasn't so that intellectuals could create a job for themselves. It's not like, oh, man, this seems like a great, you know, avenue for profit and for me to make a job. No, 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 no. Instead, this all came about as followers of Jesus were trying to know how to relate to their glorious God. In prayer, no less. And so we have Jesus who lived, died, rose again. And this is what he teaches on prayer, to pray in Jesus' name to the heavenly Father. And then he promises he's going to send the Spirit as a helper to help us in our prayers in the moment of weakness. So we see a God-taught, God-directed, and God-empowered moment of intimacy in prayer. That's why this is important. Once again, go back to Lewis in Mere Christianity He says, I warned you that theology is practical. The whole purpose for which we exist is to be thus taken into the life of God. Wrong ideas about what that life is will make it harder. And so when we come to Genesis 1 and 2, we don't merely read Genesis 1 and 2. As Christians, to responsibly read Genesis 1 and 2, we both read forward and backward. We first understand the context in which we are in, yes, 
But we read forward, understanding that all of what is called the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, Genesis through Malachi, and one formulation of the Old Testament, looks forward to the life, death, burial, resurrection, and then return of Jesus. That's a forward reading. So it's all in anticipation. Also, we read backward after having a deeper revelation as to who God is in Jesus and by the power of the Spirit. We go back to the Hebrew Scriptures and we say it was the same God yesterday, today, and forever. So when we go back, we now come with a deeper revelation because of the gospel as to who this God is that shows up in Genesis 1 and 2. And so when we read Genesis 1 and 2 and we read that the Ruach Elohim, the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters, we know it's not some impersonal force or some wind, but we see that it's the Holy Spirit, that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are collaborating together and in their inter-Trinitarian love, it overflows to create a beautiful world. That's what we can see. Because the breadth of Scripture, the biblical writers are inviting us into an enchanted world where our God is tripersonal and yet one. And while we don't get the full story in these first two verses, it does lay the foundation for that broader framework. And so without the Spirit, there is no God. Without the Spirit, we do not have a correct understanding of God, and we do not have a Christian framework for God. There are other religions that have no framework for the Spirit, but it is not the Christian one, and therefore the one that brings life in Christ by the Spirit for the Father. Now, everything is enchanted with Spirit, but it doesn't stop with God. Instead, what we come to see next is that the created order is enchanted with the Spirit as well. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, we see that God created everything, the heaven and the earth, okay, sky and land, A to Z, the whole picture, it's a summary sentence. And then Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, we see that the world, though, was without form and void. Tohu vavohu, you know, say that after me. Tohu vavohu. Man, you're Hebrew scholars and you didn't even know it. See, you're showing up. But the reason I bring that up is this word bohu that in some translations has the word void doesn't exactly capture what that word is seeking to communicate. This vohu by many commentators highlights this trackless expanse of desert. It's not as if there's nothing there. It's clear that there's something there because the spirit is hovering over it. But instead, what we see is that it is this darkest, most chaotic waters. It is meant to be this picture of the primordial chaos of the world. And you need to understand, when we come, so often, we around here, we love this particular phrase by a particular philosopher who says, we often see what we know rather than know what we see. We come to the text and we go looking for an affirmation from categories that we got out here rather than going to the original author, the original audience, the intended purpose, and then crossing the cultural divide as to where we are today. And so when we come to this, we often can think, oh, to not exist applies to matter and the scientific method and begin to apply 16th century questions to an ancient text. And it's not that it doesn't have anything to say about that, but that was not the primary note, nor was that the questions they were wrestling through. Instead, for an ancient Near Eastern mindset to have no name, to have no order, 
and to have no purpose meant you did not exist. And what do we see in Genesis chapter 1? Naming, order, and purpose. All on display here. And it's not, once again, that those conversations that often end up bubbling up from a more recent era are unimportant. It was just not what was on Moses' heart and mind when he was writing to the people as they're leaving Egypt. They're like, anybody got their beaker? No, nobody's got their beaker. Well, let's bring out like, no, 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 no. They're thinking, who are the gods? This is why the sun and the moon are not the normal names for sun and moon. It's the greater light and the lesser light because the, norms, the name sun and the name moon were actually names of gods in the ancient Near Eastern world. Moses is giving them a framework for how to navigate the world with purpose, with names, and God's intention. Often commentators will say this is a home text rather than a house text. This isn't about the blueprints as to where the two by fours fit. Instead, this is a home where God is rearranging the furniture and telling you who lives there. We see that God is over creation. He is the author of creation and he is for his creation. That's what we see here, which is so contrary to the narratives of the day in the ancient Near East. Our God is truly astounding. And in the midst of that, we find the spirit hovering. This language is like a mother chick hovering or a mother hen hovering over her chicks, caring, protecting, about to bring order to chaos. Bruce Waltke, one particular theologian, describes it this way. Hovering like an eagle over the primordial abyss, the almighty spirit prepares the earth for human habitation. Chaos is about to be ordered. And you know, when we step into poetic language, which this is, you feel the rhythms of the flow and the dynamic of the Hebrew text. It's hard to sometimes wrap our modern minds around ancient metaphor and brilliance. And so sometimes you need to explain art with art, or at least help enlighten our minds. And so I'm really grateful for Kelly Cruz, the curator of our four-chapter gallery, and she has been doing a deep dive in one of her most recent works, and we get a sneak peek today uh, of her most recent work as she's diving into the book of Genesis. And she actually has a piece on Genesis 1, verse 2. It's currently untitled. Here it is. It's currently untitled. But it's really diving into the Ruach Elohim hovering over these chaotic waters. And I love how she described her process. And think about what we've already seen in the text thus far. This painting, she says, is inspired by what would have previously been a waste material. Paper towels that have collected ink runoff from my painting table. Often I use the towels as long as possible, and then they become encrusted with these gorgeous pigments. But they're utterly useless. They have no purpose. To the modern mind, maybe, they are beautiful for their own sake, which is a very modern perspective. In the creation paradigm, though, they are without existence. I decided to create whole works out of materials like this, an homage to the wild and waste of the artist's studio, full of matter and yet not yet ordered. In this large work, I've carefully dusted gold mica powder over all the edges of the paper. God's spirit hovers near over all of the chaos, ready to form an order the deep. And then I love what she says here. She kind of muses a little bit. She says, God takes things that have no purpose, even the darkest, most chaotic, and he finds a way to bring life, flourishing, and perfect beauty to them through his purposes and for his glory. That image. 
It's a commentary in many ways on Genesis 1 and 2, chapter 1, verse 2, that draws you into contemplation and to meditation, which is exactly what Genesis 1 and 2 invites us to, rather than easy answers so that we can feel self-righteous. Instead, it's inviting us into intimacy with who our God is. But without the Spirit, there is no order, there is no purpose, there is no life. And you know, it's interesting, wherever you see creation teeming with life, that is the enchantment of the Spirit. And it's right there in plain sight in so much of our life. I mean, right here in these plants up here on the stage. And right there in my pepper plants. There they are. Um, I, those are literally my pepper plants. Uh, figured they had some beautiful colors, so why not show them off? But here's the deal. There's something astounding about this. Imagine the chaos pre-creation, but instead it's the Spirit who goes about under the edict of the Father and the Son to carry about this ordering of the world. And so whenever you see just plants and the brilliance of scientists who have better understood photosynthesis, the engagement of water and sunlight and the unique combination and the nutrients of the soil and so on to bring about this extraordinary explosion of power from a little seed that then germinates and grows and then in its health, it actually reproduces. This is all the enchantment of the spirit actually sustaining the created order right there. Not just in our hearts, in a soul-shaped world, but instead, in all of God's creation that he created, we see the Spirit actually at work, sustaining order and beauty. Don't limit the role of the Spirit because God has a cosmic perspective, not an individualistic one exclusively. And so this is why, partly why, I just appreciate those of you among us who are so scientifically minded. Sometimes you get demonized in the church which is a true shame because the earliest scientists <laughs> were more than likely Christians. Most of them were. And what did they see their journey as? Is actually to uncover and to see with greater clarity the order that the Spirit of God has instilled in the broader world. And they had an extraordinary desire to lean into the created order, to have an open mind in how God was doing what only he could do in this order. We need your expertise for those of you who are engaged in any sort of vocation in the sciences. We need your help, and we value your input. In a world today that wants to poo-poo anybody who declares their expertise, which is extraordinarily anti-authoritarian, where my only authority is me and my websites, we need, we need scientifically followers of Jesus, scientific followers of Jesus who are guiding us in the truth for our good. So thank you. We love you so much. We need you. You're doing, you're doing God's work. We here at Christ Community believe that God works through various vocations for the common good of our city, so thank you for doing God's work. Just last week, we had an emergency at the end of our second service, and I was so grateful for those who are in the medical field, which is a scientific field to understand the very dynamics of the body, and they were there. God works through all of those means for our flourishing. And he cared. We had folks caring for that individual to see that they got the, the help they needed. Praise God. Folks like Zach Bull, who was there, right there, just jumped right in. We had somebody else who was calling 911. First responders who understand the dynamics of the body and chose to be experts for our care. Amazing. 
may we listen to them rather than constantly discount them because we think we know better. But without the Spirit, none of that. We have no order. We have no God. And then maybe the last more self-interested piece, we are enchanted with the Spirit. (laughs) You know, you find the poetic rhythm of Genesis chapter 1 where you see this dance going. You can almost imagine the music behind it where God says something and then it comes to being and then he says it's good. God says something, it comes to being and then it's good and this goes, this rhythm, this beautiful bass drum, it is good, it is good, it is good until finally it is very good. I mean, the absolute brilliance, the construction of this text is beyond me and only shows that the spirit of God was guiding Moses. but we get a microscopic perspective as to how that impacts you and me when we get to Genesis chapter two, verses five through seven. So let me read verse seven once again for us this morning. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. God's breath. the very force of life, the Holy Spirit carrying out his work. And what we see right here is that every human being, because of the dynamic work of the Spirit, is actually God-breathed. Every human being, regardless actually whether or not they're followers of Jesus or not. But they are made in the image of God. From conception all the way to death, regardless of race, regardless of socioeconomic status, regardless of gender, we all have indelible value and therefore have a framework for mutual respect and care to pursue each other's good, even at the expense of our own. This is what God has created human beings to be, and we are enchanted too by the Spirit. Now, we're not, some people, I I don't remember where I heard this first, but some people believe we're just meat computers. That's a fascinating idea, isn't it? Just these cause and effect movement of neurons, you know, these electrical pulses in our brain that animate our bodies. That's it. Nor are we, though, the opposite, and sometimes we find this in Christian circles, the opposite, we're just a soul, and we're going to shed this body one day. Neither of those are true. What we see in the text is that we are embodied spiritual beings. We have bodies that have been empowered and actually shaped by the one we are made in the image of. And therefore, we too are spiritual beings with an everlasting trajectory, whether with God or apart from him, depending on how we respond to his son and the reception of his spirit. And so, we see without the spirit, there is no God. Without the spirit, there is no created order. Without the spirit, there is no us. Everything Everything is enchanted with the Spirit. And if we choose to ignore this fact, we're actually going to miss the more that is actually embedded in everything because of the, the power of the Holy Spirit. And so here's my request for each and every one of us today, regardless of where you are in your faith journey, as we are seeking to navigate God's Word and learn more about the Holy Spirit, as we are seeking to anticipate His work in us and through us, his unique presence. If you think of Ephesians chapter two, we'll get there. When we gather in his name, there's something unique that happens when people gather in the name of Jesus that only happens when we gather in the name of Jesus. When, we, when, we, when we're engaged in this journey, I wanna invite each and every one of us to open yourself to the more. That's it. 
We're all coming with some frameworks here. (laughs) That as we're anticipating, as we're seeking to understand and discern the work of the Spirit throughout our lives anchored in Scripture, I want you to open yourself to the more. So if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, you've yet to really embrace even the framework that God exists, that he would send his son Jesus to die for you, that he would then send his spirit to comfort and equip you and empower you towards a flourishing life in the shape of the gospel. If that's difficult, I just want to invite you to open yourself to the possibility of the more. To be honest with that inkling, that feeling that there indeed is something more than just cause and effect in life and this isn't some evolutionary byproduct that hope you make you feel better for a couple minutes and then go about your life. And if you are a follower of Jesus and you're here, let's not ignore the work of the Holy Spirit. He's all over the text. And he's all over the work of the church. And the church doesn't seem to ignore him, but instead tends to lean in, speak of, and follow his leading. May that be true of us. Now, I will say this. It's going to be uncomfortable Partly because it's unfamiliar. Whenever you grow, you're stepping into a realm of the unfamiliar, right? And if you want to use this illustration, you can. You could even say that in many ways, the chaotic primordial waters of Genesis chapter 2 had a status about them. But the Spirit had to disrupt the chaos to bring order. The Spirit may have to disrupt what you feel like is order, but is actually chaos. Are you ready for that? Because He will if you're open to it. And what an astounding world we are invited to live into. When we're honest about the more of what, or better yet, who is engaged. You know, my family and I, we do family movie nights every Friday night. And one of the movies we watched, uh, I don't know, a couple months ago was the Spiderwick Chronicles. I don't know if you've ever heard of this one. But I thought it was actually a brilliant illustration because you have, it was a 2008 film, so it's a little dated, I guess. It sounds weird to say 2008's dated. That's because I'm getting old. Uh older. <clears throat> and Jared Spiderwick, his family forces him to move. So he's a, a probably a young teenager there, forces him to move into his grandfather's house. He didn't want to move. There's certain dynamics at play and he's frustrated. He's angry and he's taking it out on his family. And then he finally finds this like field guide of his grandfather that describes these imaginative characters that are out in the land. He thinks they're absolutely absurd until he finds a little rock with a hole in it. And what looks like to the everybody else, just the wind blowing and the pebbles slowly trickling around because the earth is shaking, he looks through the rock and he begins to see so much more. All these characters that his grandfather had described are real. And there's a battle being engaged and he gets to be a part of it because he can see what's really there. His world is expanded and his adventure begins. You see, God has enchanted this world and he's invited us to live into something more. He created you with more in mind. The Lord Jesus came, he lived and he died and he rose again to invite you to this life and this life abundant that has more in mind to empower you with the spirit to go into this more. And he hasn't left us to kind of fumble around in the dark and hope that we bump into the truth. Instead, he's given us his word to give us guidance as to who he is that we might relate to who he is and walk in the world that he's created. But may we be open. 
May these next six weeks, may we as a church become more in tune and attuned to the work of the Spirit in our hearts collectively and individually as we seek to follow Jesus. Let's pray for that, shall we? Heavenly Father, King Jesus, who's invited us to life in your kingdom, and Holy Spirit, who is renewing us in our mind and in our hearts as we lean into the spiritual disciplines and become more saturated in the beauty of who you've revealed yourself to be. Grow us in our intimacy with you that out of our relationship with you, we might become more of who you've called us and created us to be. Thank you for your grace that you have called us of no merit of our own to be a part of this and actually to redeem us to the bigger world that you have indeed created. Open us to more. And may we be willing to receive more. Not that there's actually growing amounts of you, that, that we just might be a, a more attuned to the the richness of your presence already with us. God, would that be true? May it be true with me, may it be true with us. For the good of the city and the proclamation of the gospel. Pray in the name of Jesus. Amen, amen, and amen.